Are we, are we live now? I'm recording. You're <laughs> listening to Mumbrella Cast. Mumbrella, Mumbrella Cast. Cast. Welcome to the Mumbrella Cast, brought to you by our friends at Budget Direct. I'm Mumbrella's content director, Tim Burrows. And I'm Mumbrella's editor, Vivian Kelly. Also joining us is Mumbrella reporter, Brittany Rigby. Hello. And later we'll be talking to Fiona Jolly from the Ad Standards Board about what goes on behind the scenes when the rulings are made. Pretty much any issue in the code, at some point there will be quite fierce debate around the table. The case for industry self-regulation. If, if government was involved in regulating advertising broadly, it would just it would be so costly to the industry and would not provide the same fast and efficient service that it does to the community who are offended. And how advertising will be changed by COVID-19. We're seeing advertisers reusing a lot of ads. So because they're not actually being able to create new material necessarily, there's a lot of ads that are out there at the moment are things that um, that we've already looked at. But first, the week's topics. Bauer closes its entire New Zealand operation, while News Corp and Nine scale back their print products in Australia. What are the rules for employers making emergency pay cuts? Who won the pre-Easter TV ratings battle? And what happened to April Fool's Day brand pranks this year? Well, it has been another awful week for media. In the space of a few days, it kept getting worse. On Tuesday, Nine said it was suspending several print sections of its publishing arm with Boss, Sophisticated Traveller, Luxury... Good Food magazine and executive style all going into hibernation. Domain magazine will also be suspended. Then on Wednesday, News Corp made the even bigger announcement that it's suspending the print editions of its 60 community titles. Few people expect that they'll all come back. And on Thursday, the bombshell that Bauer is completely closing, not suspending, closing its New Zealand operation. Uh, Viv, let's start with Bauer. Um, firstly, just, just how big were they in the New Zealand market? Well, in their own words, Bauer Media New Zealand is the country's largest and most influential magazine publisher, Tim. So it was a similar setup to Bauer in Australia. They had Women's Day NZ, New Zealand Women's Weekly, the Australian Women's Weekly NZ, which is a bit of a funny title. Uh, so it's it's huge, and Bauer Media Group generally uh, has print and digital products across seventeen countries on four continents. So I guess that's sixteen countries now. It's probably one of Bauer's smaller markets, but in terms of magazine operations in New Zealand, this will be a huge dent in that market. Look, I mean, it completely changes the culture when they lose one of their biggest magazine players. Um, I suppose it explains a bit. This time last week, we were. We were wondering why Bauer wasn't coming out and saying more about its acquisition of Pacific magazines here in Australia. And we were, you know, speculating it could just be about potential redundancies coming in Australia, not wanting to, you know, beat the chest about that acquisition or possibly even worrying about overpaying that 40 million for the acquisition. Um, I suppose the crunch question is having done it in New Zealand, presumably quite similar market dynamics. What does it mean for Bauer in Australia? I imagine it means that staff at Bauer Media and Pacific Magazines are currently quite panicked while this is happening to their New Zealand counterparts. The New Zealand team, I read, were told over Zoom, which I guess is how you find out big business announcements at the moment. So I imagine any Zoom invite from Bauer at the moment would be very stressful for staff, any kind of announcement, any kind of meeting, any kind of update. I haven't been able to speak to Brendan Hill, the CEO of Bauer across Australia and New Zealand. I imagine because, as you say, Tim, he's had a lot going on with New Zealand. They're still getting the PacMags deal through. There's lots of speculation about redundancies from staff at Seven West Media in terms of the Pacific Magazine staff. So I don't think we're going to be getting solid answers about how they're going to structure it and how they're going to move forward in Australia. Look, and one of the dynamics, and I remember we've we've written about this in the past, was when when Bauer Media first acquired the Australian stable of magazines and the New Zealand stable from uh, what had been ACP. Um, one of the issues which 
almost felt like it had taken the owners by surprise was in Europe, Barrow's really strong because it has strong subscription performance, sells a lot of copies on the newsstand. Whereas in Australia, a much bigger factor is the advertising. Now, you know, Barrow has already said that was one of the big factors in New Zealand was effectively it just became unviable because they couldn't even see whether there'd be as much advertising, you know, after the kind of the lockdowns are removed. What should Bauer be thinking about for Australia? Is is Does it feel viable to you? That sounds like a question for Brendan Hill, not for Vivian Kelly. But look, I think it's difficult to drive subscriptions in a market like this. So if they're already on the back foot in terms of being overly reliant on advertising revenue, they're not going to suddenly be able to get consumers to subscribe now that confidence is lower than ever. And so many of Bauer's titles and indeed Pacific Magazine's titles are reliant on that supermarket impulse buy. They're the type of magazines that you see while you're waiting in that line at the self-serve checkout or in the express queue as people take 26 items instead of 15. You grab the mag to start flicking through it and then you decide, oh, I'll just buy it. With people basically in lockdown across Australia and New Zealand, those opportunities for impulse buys, that idea of parting with an extra $10 for a couple of mags just is not going to be on people's radar. So they're definitely in trouble because so much of their TV week buying and and their gossip mag buying would be reliant on that. And a lot of the bigger, more solid monthly magazines, which would have been driven more by subscriptions than a buy at Coles or Woolworths, don't exist anymore. Across the magazine landscape, you know, we've lost all those big magazines like Clio and Cosmo and whatnot, which would have backed up the subscription side of the business as opposed to the impulse buy and the advertising side of the business. Well, let's um, uh, also talk about News Corp, the community titles. So in other words, that's the weekly free sheets, heavily reliant on real estate advertising, which of course all vanished once auctions stopped. Um, Completely understandable why they would have to do that from a commercial point of view. Obviously, opportunity to still communicate with their audiences kind of in the digital world and use them to feed into subscri- digital subscriptions for the um, for the metro titles they're associated with but equally that's a that's a again another big cultural hole for people not to you know receive these weekly local uh, publications yeah so weekly publications such as for example the manly daily which doesn't have a cover price you don't subscribe to you just get for free i think while so many people are moving online for their news particularly in light of covid19 and looking for constant updates constant news constant information that local newspaper is such again it's a bit of an impulse you see it in your letterbox you see it at the cafe you flick through you start reading it It'll be interesting to see if people actually do move online for their hyper-localised content from News Corp because that's maybe not how they were familiar with these community titles. Michael Miller, the executive chairman of News Corp in Australia, did say that people are increasingly going online for their local news, so this is just part of that evolution. But I think there will be a number of people who are just used to getting that from the free local community titles who might not necessarily know instantly, oh, if I want information about Manly or about my suburb, I can go to the Daily Telegraph or whatever their state-based publication is and find it there. Look, and I, speaking of Michael Miller, he, he, we, we carried a guest post from him this week. Um, I thought it was interesting because, uh, you know, as well as absolutely, you know, addressing the challenges that media companies are facing, particularly publishing companies, um, it also became a sort of bit of a refrain around the tech companies, which is something that News Corp have talked a lot, you know, particularly the sort of the Googles and Facebooks. Um, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll give the quote from it. Um, We're now at the stage where unless the federal government takes decisive action to make 2020 the year digital platforms start paying publishers to use their content, the bad news for media and Australian communities will get much worse. Time has run out. The trading imbalance between the platforms and Australian media companies 
cannot continue. In other words, he's sort of saying this is becoming existential. And unless Australia changes the law to force the tech platforms to pay to link to um, traditional media content, um, then that will be the end of the game. Look, I'll give Michael Miller and his counterparts at Nine this. They never miss an opportunity to let people know that Facebook and Google are a problem. Even in the midst of a global pandemic, they find a way to work it in. Unfortunately, correct though he may be, I do think legislators and the government are just going to be so preoccupied with every other catastrophic business and societal need as a result of COVID-19 that they might not get around to doing what these local media organisations need them to do in order to survive because how do you pick the priority? It's not just the media sector that's under pressure now. It's absolutely everybody, every part of the economy. So I, I don't know that they'll necessarily get the outcome that they want even though it might be in the community's best interest. Which is something of an irony, isn't it, that never has there been more of a, you know, time for hunger for news and arguably never has there been a time when there have been fewer advertisers actually willing to get their messages out there and with the budgets to get their messages out there and support it. Yes, well, they don't necessarily translate directly. They're, they're, every media outlet, including us, has had a spike in traffic because people are at, at home they're hungry for news, they're not socialising as much, they've got far more time to be online, far more things they're anxious about that they want to understand. That doesn't mean that the consumer confidence is there though. So those consumers might be totally willing to absorb the news but they might be less likely to click through and buy the goods that the advertisers are advertising around that content. And so businesses also are scaling back their budgets and can't necessarily justify spending huge amounts of money when that consumer confidence is so low. Well, next, what happens when companies ask staff to take a pay cut? So this week saw Seven West Media become the latest media company to take drastic steps to cut costs. Anyone earning over $80,000 a year will be moved down to a four-day week and anyone who's earning over 200000 will still be asked to work normal hours. Uh, but asked, or possibly the word is advised or maybe told, to take a 20% pay cut. Now, um, Brittany, this has been happening a lot in agencies and media companies. Some, you know, I've heard tell of some going to 40% or more, and that's people who obviously get to keep their jobs you've been looking uh, into the rights and ramifications of this uh it's worth worth reminding our non-regular listeners that you're you are yourself a qualified lawyer uh, which makes you the right person to have written this piece for us on umbrella um but maybe what are actually the rules when an employer suddenly tells its staff to take a pay cut can they just impose it unilaterally i mean short answer is no i mean you, the interesting thing is we're talking about employment laws that already exist, but are being applied in a situation we've never seen before. I mean, the word unprecedented is possibly the word of the year at this point, but it really is unprecedented in terms of the situations that employers would find themselves in where pay cuts are really kind of a very quick measure to take. The thing is, is that it has to be essentially by agreement. You know, if you've got a contract with an employer and say you're at seven and earning $80,000 a year, seven can't just start paying you, you know, $70,000 a year in your next pay cycle and too bad for you. It has to be by agreement. The issue is, of course, is that job security at the moment is so shaky and people are so worried and anxious about, you know, losing their job in more of a redundancy sense than a, than a pay cut sense that people will agree to anything really at this point. So stand downs um, are another interesting one because they're usually really tricky to apply. You have to prove essentially that the employee can't be usefully engaged, but we're in a pandemic, you know, sports reporters, for instance, what are they going to be doing for the next six months? So those sorts of tools as well are much easier to rely upon than they usually are. It's interesting with the agreement aspect of it, that 
in sevens pay cuts. So if you're earning between 80000 per annum and 200000 per annum, including superannuation, they're reducing your pay by 20%, but you're getting 20%, you're having to do 20% less hours in effect. So you'll work four days a week. The executives above 200K just have to keep working the same hours, but get less money. In the email that James Warburton, the CEO of Seven, sent out to staff though, he did say that basically by showing up to work the next day and continuing to work, that signals your agreement. So staff didn't actually have to come back and say, I agree to this and I'm taking Fridays off. They were allowed to speak to people and culture about their concerns and he asked them to be patient, respectful and considerate when seeking details and clarity around these new arrangements. But it didn't really feel like it was up for discussion. Uh, Your continued performance of work on or after 1st of April 2020 will signify your acceptance of the above arrangement. That seems pretty what's the other option? Stop showing up to work? Is that is that how you signal that you disagree with it? Wow. Yeah, I feel like as well that it doesn't really signal good faith very much, does it? I mean, in, in writing the feature that, Tim, you mentioned, um, I learned that AAP, Nine and News Corp, for instance, have agreed to engage in consultation meetings where, say, every week or every fortnight, staff will be allowed to come to management with questions, management will have updates and anything like, you know, pay cuts, asking to be to take leave, stand downs, reduced hours, you know, will be discussed. And it seems that, you know, employers generally are trying to do the right thing or as much right as they can. AAP, for instance, obviously still up in the air, still trying to lock in a buyer but I have heard that for employees who have been made or their roles have been made redundant and they've been at the company for less than 12 months, meaning that they don't qualify for a redundancy payout, that AAP is still agreeing to pay them an ex gratia payment or a one-off payment to kind of recognise their service nonetheless. So it's an interesting approach from Seven in that, you know, this is being widely discussed, widely reported on, Yes, at the moment, employees don't have much choice or much power, unfortunately. But on the other side of this, you know, I think it will say a lot about media companies, about how they handled this whole situation and how they treated their people. And I mean, it's interesting in terms of rock up to work and, you know, that's it. This is this is how it is from now on. The union, the Media Entertainment and Arts Alliance has been very clear in saying, don't sign anything straight away you know, there could be room for negotiation if it affects huge swaths of employees, you know, there should be consultation and there should be an, an agreement. Um, and so, yeah, the this is what's happening too bad approach is an interesting one. Well, another question I suppose occurs to me is, and again, I don't, I don't know if you know the answer to this one, but um, if somebody does agree to take that pay cut and then things get worse and the employer does make them redundant, when they're calculating their rights, is that based on their original salary or on the salary they agreed to take? It's a tricky question. I think it would depend on how the new agreement is phrased, whether or not this is your new contract from now onwards. and your old contract is essentially dead or this is an agreement from now until the end of the financial year and then maybe you could argue that your base contract is still your overall contract and this is a temporary measure. Um, But, yeah, I'm sure that it's one that employment lawyers across the country will be asking themselves right now. In the case of Seven, for example, with the people who've been asked to move to four-day weeks, they are using an annual leave day each week to make up for that. So it's they're also getting down their annual leave balances and it's just people who don't have annual leave who won't be paid for that other day and then essentially they're just taking unpaid leave. So if those people at seven were to be made redundant, I imagine they would get their full payout based on their 100% salary because essentially what they're doing is either taking unpaid leave to get down to 80% or they're using up their annual leave each week to effectively get that balance sheet in order. 
And I mean, Uh most employers are at the moment encouraging people to take leave regardless, even if it's not kind of phrased as a a mandatory thing, because you're exactly right, Viv, if it comes to having to make those redundancies, you've then got huge liabilities by way of paying out that annual leave. Yeah, that's a good point to make, Britt, because of course, getting someone to take annual leave doesn't immediately help the cash flow of the company because they still have to pay the leave, but it does help get down the uh, the liabilities. I wonder, I, I know there's been a lot of talk on, you know, the fact that uh, we've just had this massive social experiment that proves that maybe you don't need to have every meeting face-to-face. Maybe actually it works for people to work from home. Um, I wonder if the social experiment will also prove that a lot of people can actually do their job in four days a week if they put their minds to it. Well, that's a challenge I think women particularly have been experiencing for a long time is that, you know, if you come back to work after having a baby, for example, and you're on three or four days a week, so many women say it's actually just working the equivalent of five days a week, but only getting paid for three or four. So that's that's always been an issue with part-time arrangements in that your employer still expects your job to be done. And if your job is effectively a full-time one, trying to squeeze it in to eight hours less often isn't practical. You've just got to find those eight hours to work elsewhere. So that's that's the issue with it. Viv, your views? I obviously agree with Brittany, but I think businesses will be looking for ways to save money and to turn this catastrophic pandemic into a positive. And, and if we do find new ways of working and if we do find, oh, do you know what, we actually work fine without this 20% and things still got done, I think a lot of time-wasting tasks might fall by the wayside as people realise, oh, my goodness, well, I just don't have as much time as I used to. So, it has the potential to be a positive in that people will have to prioritise, there'll be less wasteful meetings, less wasteful outings and long lunches perhaps. But the risk is that people will have just as much work to do. We're in a huge crisis. There's so much communication that needs to be happening across the business world. People might not accept, oh, no, today's my day off because my company's in trouble and I'm sitting at home doing nothing. People can't even use this annual leave to go and have a good time. So the temptation will be there to just keep working because you'll be sitting on your couch looking at your computer thinking, oh, well, there's nothing else to do. I'll just go online. And, of course, the temptation's still there to keep working because employers, in a way, have power because employees who do still have a job feel lucky to still have a job. And so are you going to sit around in your lounge room watching TV instead of being on your laptop for a day? Or are you going to think, wow, how else can I show value? How else can I prove that, you know, my role is indispensable? And in terms of annual leave and and pay cuts and all of those sorts of things, something that I was thinking about yesterday is that even when we get to the other side of this and the tourism industry, for example, can restabilize to an extent, people won't have the annual leave to take holidays and they won't have the savings to take holidays if they've had pay cuts or reduced hours. So I think it'll be really interesting to see how long it takes for some industries to recover in terms of others because people will have to keep working. They won't have leave left to take when they can go back outside. Well, thanks for discovering yet another depressing implication. (laughs) Next, we meet the market. As regular listeners would know, Mumbrella is rethinking what we do instead of our busy events calendar. One experiment is our new video series, Meet the Market. You can find it on the Mumbrella homepage. And in our first episode, Mumbrella's Abigail Dawson spoke to three agency bosses about how their teams are handling remote working. Joe Scard urges a democratic process in building the working rhythms, while Chris Howitson discusses how to avoid burning people out during intense days online. And this- Teams that have never worked remotely might take, you know, a couple of goes to get that right. And I think having a discussion with people in a week or two and just to get their feedback about what they think is working for them and different people will respond differently, but taking all that feedback on board. And Chris, what about what about for you and your team? I was um, chatting to Laura Adelton last night from Host 
And so I hope she doesn't mind me sharing this. She was talking to some of her colleagues over in the UK and she said, you know, obviously there are a couple of weeks ahead of us and what they're starting to find is the fatigue that's setting in. Because right now there's still an excitement, there's still an adrenaline that this is going on. There's the energy of uncertainty that's probably driving us all along. Um, I think that we, I, I love the optimism that we're generally talking about about how this is going to change, how we're going to work, but I think we have to be really careful that um, this this feels like it's set in. I think we have to make sure we we manage the energy of our people and the mental fatigue. We've really tried to sort of say stop the end of the day, go for a walk, do something, but the, the reality is is we're all working really hard to help our clients right now so that there's, there's just long days. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think we just have to be careful of that. And then I think when this is all over, um, we have to make sure that then those habits don't become the norm. So I think there's a there's a real folk impetus, I think, on us as leaders to to reset when we go back and don't just sort of flow through. Um, so they're probably the things that are in, on my mind. I think there's a lot of a, a lot of mechanical things, a lot of process things we can solve in the day-to-day, but the big two things I'm worried about is fatigue of people which and the loneliness that will come from just being at home. Because this is great. It's lovely talking to you guys. But I really miss the chemistry and the energy of being around people. And I've got, I don't know if you can hear my kids, but my kids are home in the room over there. And so it's great to be around my family. That's a real upside of this. Uh, but yeah, I think I think we've got actually some tougher mm. times ahead when we're going to deal with some some really big issues beyond the functionality of conference calls. You can find this episode of Meet the Market on the Mumbrella homepage, and please do tell us what you think. Next, the year that April Fool's Day was mostly cancelled. Want to access Mumbrella conferences while you work from home? With hundreds of hours of audio and video content from a range of past Mumbrella events, including Mumbrella 360, detailed speaker presentation slide decks, and even a dedicated industry directory of over 2,000 contacts across media brands and agencies, Mumbrella Pro is the perfect solution to all of your on-demand learning needs. Take the free seven-day trial today at mumbrella.com.au forward slash pro so most brands decided to give april fool's day a miss this year with one notable exception are you missing having a punt on the footy this year well now you can with Sportsbet's new classic match betting simply open the app and select your favorite afl or nrl matches from yesteryear being telecast on fox sports and channel 7 please note an honor system will apply so if you already know the scores please refrain from betting so what are you waiting for turn back the clock with classic match betting coming soon to sports bet so Viv, it's been a bit of a tradition from Umbrella. I think we've done it every year since we started. So that would go right back to April the 1st, 2009, of just one lucky recipient, a member of the news team, spending the entire day writing up every single April Fool's Day brand prank. And I must admit, it used to be fun, and then it became quite the chore, and then kind of bit like the magic of Christmas, the magic of April Fool's Day went away when people started sending out as a press release, this will be our April Fool's Day thing, like three days ahead of time under embargo. Um, so I'm not sure I was heartbroken, but we, we decided not to do it this year. So why, why was that? Look, I would argue that the magic of April Fool's Day died a long time before the magic of Christmas. I don't think we can draw parallels there. But it felt like generally the world over it was agreed that 2020 had been enough of a prank that we didn't need to indulge in April Fool's Day this year. You know, there was no big worldwide brand meeting where everybody signed a declaration, but it felt very much implied that it wasn't the right tone, it wasn't the right mood. You've got to be really careful what you joke about because the situation with COVID-19 is changing day to day, hour to hour, minute by minute, that something that might be funny right now could very easily not be funny in a couple of hours. So one, I don't think consumers had the appetite for it because we're all just so exhausted by the world that we live in. And two, I think it was such a brand risk to be turning anything into a joke when brands and consumers are under such pressure. Britt, your view? Yeah, I agree. I was scrolling through Twitter the night before April Fool's 
and the number of tweets that were like, please, dear God, let brands have got the memo that April Fool's Day is cancelled. I do not want to see your dumb press release with your dumb joke. And it, it did feel like it would have landed really poorly. And I think, as Viv mentioned, you know, I'm sure the April Fool's Day ideas were planned long before COVID-19 wreaked havoc on all of them. But at the same time, brands and consumers have much bigger fish to fry at the moment than, you know, making sure that that prank is out there, let alone making sure that it lands the way that you wanted it to and that it was intended. Viv, Advertising Age had quite good advice for marketers, didn't they? Look, they had an opinion piece that said something along the lines of what should marketers do to nail their April Fool's Day pranks? And it was a one-word opinion piece, which was nothing. And it was a bit like, I think it was the New York Times did an op-ed a couple of weeks ago uh, saying, you know, giving advice about whether or not you should go out. And the word was just no. Uh, So I think everybody mostly got that memo. However, Sportsbet did proceed with their April Fool's Day gag, meaning they did get publicity because they were one of the only ones to dare to do it, but they did uh, definitely stand out and thus divide the market because people just weren't sure whether 2020 was the year for a joke. Next, TV winners. So it might not seem like it, but Easter is coming. Given that I'm still in uh, home isolation, I've not worked out how I'm going to actually obtain any hot cross buns this year. So uh, I'm definitely the real victim. Um, But um, Easter's coming, which means the end of the first major TV battleground of the year. Um, Fifth, first quarter, it's all been about married at first sight, hasn't it? Yes, as it has been in recent years, uh, Nine has had another really strong first quarter with people just tuning into the destruction and devastation that is married at first sight. That's been particularly successful this year in the face of Seven not really putting up strong competition and dividing that audience. So Seven's primetime offering in Q1 of My Kitchen Rules, The Rivals, Now, in Seven's defence, My Kitchen Rules has been on the down for quite a while because it's it's a decade-old format. It's been around forever. It was never going to be able to maintain the massive audiences it used to get seven or eight years ago. But it's had a really tough year. It hasn't pulled people away from maths, which has just given Nine such a good head start for 2020. And also that's been boosting their news offering because people are looking for news, as we discussed earlier in the podcast. And while Seven News does still across the five capital cities still often beat Nine News, Nine News does really benefit from those people tuning in for Married at First Sight. And then there's a few other shows to think about in the coming uh, the coming season, sort of we, – we... We still have this weird system where there's an official rating season and an off season. So we're about to go into two weeks of non-TV ratings, which uh, was scheduled before. I guess it was realised that everybody would be at home anyway. Um, so a few quite sort of nice, warm, cosy, escapist, don't worry shows from Nine, things like Lego Masters and The Voice coming up. Well, we've got seven moving into house rules and uh and 10 doing masterchef yes so masterchef starts on easter monday 10's done a bit of a shuffle of their programming so traditionally before masterchef we are treated to the absolute delight that is bachelor in paradise now even though that has finished filming and was all out of the way before covid19 and travel restrictions came in 10 decided to push that back and bring us MasterChef first. Now, I think that's an interesting decision because I think 10 really could have benefited from that destruction programming of Bachelor in Paradise and that social media noise that would have surrounded it, much like Married at First Sight. We've got so many people stuck at home and instead they did a couple of weeks of extra sort of Jamie Oliver cooking shows, How Clean Is Your Home, a program from Britain about how to isolate yourself. And then they're going to go straight into MasterChef. Now, 
I think given that they've had to postpone production of The Bachelor due to all of the kissing and all of the saliva exchange, which we can't do at the moment, I think Tan really needed Bachelor in Paradise and really would have done well in the key advertising demographics had they stuck with that, but they've decided to do MasterChef first. Do you think that they're hoping that MasterChef will tap into everyone being at home and cooking? I feel like every man and his dog is baking bread right now and making cookies and trying all the weird recipes you otherwise never have time for and can maybe grab at the supermarket because, you know, pasta and rice is is not accessible. Maybe they're hoping that it kind of inspires people cooking at home to go back to MasterChef if they haven't watched in previous seasons. Yeah, I wonder if we'll see a spike in smoke alarms going off and tiny house fires <laughs> as everybody tries to bite off more than they can chew with their cooking adventures. Look, I don't know. I'm sure that Tan has their reasons. I think they had time to run Bachelor in Paradise and MasterChef. This epidemic and this social distancing is going to go on for quite a while. So I think the risk with pushing Bachelor in Paradise back is that it just changes that consumer habit and behaviour. We're used to going into it after the peak of summer and that momentum might stop and people who were watching maths might have transitioned to their next crazy fix of young dating people to Bachelor in Paradise. I don't know that they'll necessarily jump to MasterChef. Do you think maybe there's also a factor of just being aware that a lot of stuff isn't in production, so what you've got, you've got to stretch? So it could be that hanging on to some Bachelor in some form might be just something to have in the locker for later in the year if if, if the production on the other other seasons hasn't fully wrapped. Look, totally. All the networks are going to have programming holes. Uh, you know, Seven obviously isn't going to have the Olympics. Uh, the production of Holy Moly has paused. While now, do I you think they might, they might grab the rights to the US version of Holy Moly instead? Look, someone will have to because we're going to have to start relying on other content to get us through. The Bachelor's paused. I can't imagine The Bachelorette's going to even start filming anytime soon. They haven't announced who that's going to be. Every network has shows on pause or has had to adapt in terms of I know even The Voice has had to change the judges for some episodes because the international judges weren't able to get back into the country. So with all of these logistical nightmares, perhaps they do just need to look at their slate for the whole year and really space it out and pad it with international versions of Holy Moly and additional scenes of Jamie Oliver cooking in his kitchen. And I guess just before we wrap up, we should just acknowledge that um, 10's um, Survivor Australia wrapped up a few days back as well after um, another, where am I, consumer, very fine season, I thought. <laughs> yes, Tim, you were very keen the other day to talk about the Australian Survivor All-Stars finale, but unfortunately found that I wasn't a viewer this year. Fortunately for 10, uh, 878,000 Metro viewers watched the final episode and 944,000 Metro viewers were there to see the, the big announcement. Uh, nationally, that climbed to 1.217 watching the winner announcement. So anything above a million for 10 is a win and I think the season got pretty good acclaim from consumers and the brands that were involved. So I imagine they'd be happy. Speaking of logistics and travel bans and trying to still produce TV shows around all of that, what did you think of the reunion show, Tim? There was yeah, Osha hosting. There was more Osha, yes. So um, Jonathan Lapalier did. He had to come in from. I think he was in LA, but he couldn't get back in from the US. So he he supposedly had the original votes with him because he he luckily had taken the the tribal urn with him on on his his jaunt to LA. Supposedly, uh, yeah. One of the one of the finalists was was in Melbourne, so it wasn't everybody in the one studio in the one place. So it did probably take away the atmosphere a bit. But it's always nice to know that Osha can be turned out for any eventuality including as a spare la palier so um, <laughs> so yeah it was um it, it, it was a neat enough finish i thought and also um i obviously was uh delighted that the golden god was the winner next viv and i will be talking to the boss of the ad standards board fiona jolly 
people who keep the ad industry honest are the Ad Standards Board. As the ASB has stepped more and more into challenging discrimination and vilification, it's arguably being increasingly sucked into the culture wars. Fiona Jolly is the CEO. Fiona, you're trying to create kinder conditions. What's that all about? Thanks, Tim. Thanks for having me, Umbrella. Uh, yeah, so we worked out that we hadn't done a an awareness campaign for the community for a few years, and we really wanted to have something that was a bit different, um, not just a typical, if you've got a complaint, come to add standards. So we worked with uh, Loud Creative, uh, pro bono, I have to say, uh, and they came up with this, totally turned our whole concept on its head and said, Rather than just sort of tell people the bad news, why don't you talk about encouraging good ads, ads that are pushing the social boundaries for good rather than pushing the social boundaries in the sense of, you know, what's the bottom of the barrel that, I, that I'm okay to be showing um, in the media. Uh, and that was really challenging for us because our role has always been to be the policeman and talk, tell people what they're doing wrong. And so we thought it was fabulously exciting to say, hey, let's talk about ads that are actually challenging stereotypes pushing social boundaries and really trying to um, position a positive message uh, in advertising. And, and we, it was certainly a challenging idea. The creative and visual concepts were challenging and they got a few complaints to to us about, about our own ad, but that's quite normal. Uh, but we think it was a really positive message. And I have to say, you know, since we put our campaign out, there have been quite a few other organisations now talking about kind of positioning for advertising. And Fiona, speaking of being the police of the ad industry and the fact that a lot of the publicity you get is around the negativity, sort of telling an advertiser they've crossed a line or consumers complaining about a particular campaign, how does ad standards determine when to actually reprimand an ad? You know, when is an ad offensive versus when is it actually in breach of what should be going to air? Yeah, that's a good question. So as you know, and I'm sure most of the listeners would know, we are a complaints-based organisation. So we don't have our own power to go out and tell people they're doing the right or wrong thing unless we've actually had a complaint from a member of the community or or in, in some instances various lobby groups. So our staff will do an assessment once they receive a complaint to make sure the complaint raises an issue that comes under the one of the various codes that we look after. And we then contact the advertiser and get their response to the complaint. Now, we have the the determiners of whether an ad needs to be reprimanded or pulled or not is the Ad Standards Community Panel, which used to be called the Ad Standards Board, but um, I think about two years ago we rebranded to be the Community Panel. And the reason we did that was to try and make it clearer to the to industry and the community that these were a community-based panel of people who make the decisions about whether ads breach the standards set out in the codes or not. So that group of 20 people uh, as sort of representative of a broad range of the Australian society, as, as diverse as you can sort of get it within a group of 20 people. Now, the provisions in most of the codes or most of the provisions in the codes are fairly broad. And so, for example, uh, you know, an issue about um, language in the code says that language has to be appropriate and strong or obscene language should be avoided. Now, what my view is of strong language can be quite different to what five other people's difference of strong language is. And so the community panel is there to say, here's what we think is what reasonable people in the community would think was strong or obscene language. And so it's not until we have a majority of the community panel who say that breaches the code, it's too strong, that we end up with an ad which then my team has to call the advertiser and say, hey, guys, you've breached the code uh, and you need to pull your ads. Well, question for me on that, and I've realised I've never asked this question. I've, I've, <laughs> I've talked over the years a lot about how this all works. Um, what's the actual dynamic like usually when your committee comes together to look at something? Does it actually ever get really fiery or passionate or is there usually oh. quite a lot of agreement? No, well... It, what you generally find is that there are sort of a category of complaints and ads which, for which uh, majority of people will quite quickly say it's not an issue, there's no issue here. Uh, but absolutely, Tim, when we're looking at 
ads that have been complained about that raise really um, some really a lot of them raise real sensitivities in the community where you have really diverse views and our panel really does represent that broad range of views. So on issues about um, uh, pretty much any issue in the code, at some point there will be quite fierce debate around the table. Um, and it and it's fabulous. At the end of the day, it comes down to a majority view, but we'll get some very close decisions on some of the most controversial and um, divisive issues in the community. So what's the biggest row you can actually remember over a particular ad? Do you remember what the, the most passionate debate was? Oh, look, it's Vanessa, one of the, I think this isn't necessarily the most controversial, but it's the first one when I started in this job that really took my breath away in terms of the ferocity of the views. Uh, so this is about I know, 14 years ago now, and it was a conversation about um, an advertisement for um, an insurance company and it was making a joke about overseas call centres and staff from India who were manning overseas call centres. And it was it, it was meant to be very funny and half of the panel thought it was funny, most of the panel thought it was funny, but one of the board members who had spent a lot of time in India and Pakistan and, and Central Asia, just said, you know, this is not discriminatory. There is no way this breaches the code. And so when there was, um, when the vote was that it did discriminate and that it had to be banned, I remember he thumped the table and said that he wanted to be minuted in this and it was a, the worst decision he'd ever been part of. <laughs> um, so, yes, there certainly are some table-thumping moments. And Fiona, do you ever see an ad yourself and think, my goodness, I hope we get a complaint about this one? Uh, well, this, yes, for, I mean, this job has ruined Sunday night viewing for sure because, <laughs> you know, in the old days when all the new ads were launched on Sunday nights, you'd be sitting watching whatever we were watching and every ad that came out, you'd say, oh, we'll have complaints about that one tomorrow. And, of course, as my small children have grown up, that's that's their conversation now is, Mom, Mom, I bet people have complained about this ad. And how are you um, adapting your processes for the coronavirus crisis? Um, is that going to actually slow down the process at all or are you doing things in a different way? Well, it's quite interesting. We invested uh, several years ago in, uh, over the last 18 months, actually, in a new complaint management system which means that all of our staff can access the complaints and deal with complaints from anywhere. So, you know, not working from home, work from anywhere. Uh, we are still working in our office in Canberra. We've got quite a large space and a, a very small team, so we're all comfortable with the social distancing in the office, but probably uh, but next week we'll be moving to 50-50. Um, so our staff can access the complaints data and communicate with advertisers and uh, complainants exactly the same way they always have. What we were, so there's two sort of things. One is we thought the only way that our process will slow down is if advertisers aren't working. And so far we've had very few advertisers who've come back to us and said we, that they can't reply to us within the, within the time frame. But obviously if, if they do have a problem, we will give them more leniency. Uh, so... To be honest, because advertising now is done so makes use of technology, all the ads are in a you know a digital uh, format. There really isn't any problem in being able to access information or or advertisers. So so we're quite confident the process will just continue as it is. What we have changed is that for the moment we have stopped having our community panel member meetings face to face. So we have traditionally had one face-to-face -face meeting and one teleconference each month, but obviously because we're bringing together people from all around Australia, that's no longer possible. And so in our last face-to-face -face meeting was the 11th of March and we'll now be having those uh, virtually, which people are comfortable with uh, as an interim measure. I think it does, uh, well, it'll be interesting to see after a few months how that affects the dynamic between members. Uh, and so rather than just having teleconferences, we'll be looking for video conferencing because it's important to see the whites of people's eyes when they're in a conversation about, you know, about things. Um, one of the other things that's interesting, though, is we are now seeing complaints, we're seeing advertisers reusing a lot of ads. So because they're not actually being able to create new material necessarily, 
there's a lot of ads that are out there at the moment are things that um, that we've already looked at. And so rather than having to look at them again, we'll just be saying to, to the community who complain, you know, we already looked at these, you know, we said it was fine. And probably the one that's caught my eye the most this week is the um, um, is the eBay ad which has um, ripped off roles in the elevator. And, you know, we looked at that months ago, but it's getting a really good lot of um, uh, being rerun now. So we think we'll get a lot more what we call already considered case complaints through at the moment. And Fiona, one of the anecdotal outcomes of the COVID-19 crisis with social distancing is that people are being a bit kinder to one another. So there's lots of stories about people going out for walks and making more eye contact and saying hello and checking on neighbours where previously they would have averted their eyes and gotten on with their own busy lives. In light of that, do you think that will be reflected in advertising? Do you think we'll see some better quality, kinder, more considered ads on the other side of this? Well, I hope so. And, of course, that would be good for our Kinder Conditions campaign. But um, certainly the Edelman research that came out on the um, brand trust, the trust barometer research that they just did, um, even though it only surveyed uh, European and Asian countries, um, the message from the from the 12,000 people surveyed in that was that they want brands to be showing kind messaging and to be able to demonstrate that they've um, done the right thing during this unprecedented time. What I thought was quite interesting in that report was the survey about um, the, the figures about um, the use of humour in advertising. And as I said, it's mainly European and Asian countries and they had 50% of the respondents said, be careful with humour. Uh, whereas I think, you know, certainly we all, advertisers always have to be careful, but I'd like to think that, um, you know, that the Australian community will still maintain a sense of humour during this, during this um, crisis, particularly while they're watching media. And while we're on the topic of kinder conditions, it might just be worth talking. You've, you've had a couple of winners so far. Do you want to talk about what it was that actually made them the winners? Uh, yes, so the one that we had just announced was the Cadbury ad uh, and people who nominated that ad, they actually nominated in round one as well, um, different people nominated that ad and that was about, you know, uh, it sort of raised a couple of things about um, a shop, I think the shopkeeper was sort of a Middle Eastern European, Middle Eastern sort of um Look, and he was being lovely to the to the child, and, and understanding that she need you know wanted to buy something nice for her mum, and that you know it just had a nice feel about it. And it was showing kindness. Um, the first ad which we recognised was the ad for Booking.com, and it showed um, it was a celebration of uh, representing people with a you know a, a young guy with a disability being able to access the product and have a great time and. One of the things that we really want uh, is to be able to, you know, there's so particularly around that one stood out because we don't see disabled people in advertising. You know, the the, the recent ad with um, the, the ANZ Bank with Dylan Olcott is sort of one of the first ads ad campaigns we've seen for years that really is showing people with a disability just in in a normal part of life. And the Booking.com ad was the same. It really showed someone who just happened to be in a wheelchair just having a great time and being a normal person. And we thought that was really where we want ads to be to be focusing on, on inclusion. Fiona, one of the things that is often said when we at Mumbrella write through a, an ad standards determination, whether it's that complaints have been dismissed or they've been upheld, is the question around self-regulation and whether or not it actually works because there have been instances of advertisers or brands such as, say, Wicked Campers, ignoring your determinations and sort of proceeding as they want to. What's your response to people who say, look, this doesn't work and we need harsher penalties and harsher regulation? Oh, look, that's a topic we could chat for a, a whole different podcast about. So I'll just and and I guess after 14 years in this job, I can really say ad Self-regulation does work, and even if you end up with a small number of advertisers, but one of the things that frustrates us with the media reporting of, of dismissed cases or non-compliance is that there's no recognition that over 95% of advertisers do the right thing, voluntarily pull ads that we have quickly 
and effectively decided breach standards and, and had removed from the media. And so the focus, continued focus on the fact that you do have uh, what we call in our international sort of group as um, rogue advertisers makes it seem like the whole system's a failure when it's not. It's a very small proportion. And if you think about it in terms of government resources, okay, so we operate ad standards with no government funding. It's fully funded by advertisers. And we can effectively protect the community from um, inappropriate ads at no cost to government. So where we have this couple of advertisers who do the wrong thing, we, that's where we can say to government, hey, we need a bit of a hand here because we've done everything to try and get them to comply and, they, and they're not. So if the government resources are only spent on policing a couple of businesses, that's such a saving to the community and the overall benefit is is definitely outweighs the, the small cost of government getting involved in that. If, if government was involved in regulating advertising broadly, it would just it would be so costly to the industry and would not provide the same fast and efficient service that it does to the community who are offended. And just finally, Fiona, uh, what's on your agenda for the coming months? A lot of homeschooling, unfortunately. <laughs> um, You'll have seen uh, various teenagers go past behind us as we're on this video uh, chat. Yeah. Uh, look, we've actually, we're trying to, as I said, it's business as usual for us in terms of complaints. And then for the staff who aren't as involved in complaints, we have a lot of projects that we can now is actually a great time for us. So, for example, um, assuming that our funding is still guaranteed and my message to advertisers here is to, you know, please keep putting your ads out because it's important for your brand, it's important for us that that, that you're still out there spending what you can and getting your message across. That's a really um, good point, actually. I know I said final question, but this is a good, good <laughs> point because you're, you're funded effectively through a levy on advertising. So I guess if there's less advertising out there, you you, you potentially will see some sort of budget um, absolutely, challenge. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, so uh, the latest, uh, my overnight meeting with my international counterparts is that the UK ad spend has dropped by 50% for hopefully only a short term because I think now that certainly was a shock to a lot of advertisers but I think now, you know, there's more and more people consuming media particularly while they're working from home. So I think that will bounce back but what that means potentially is that for a certain amount of time my UK counterpart will have a 50% drop in their income and that's devastating obviously. Um, We, during the GFC, uh, Australia obviously did well during the GFC. Our income dropped by, uh, I think I worked, I think we talked about it the other day, I think it was an average of 12% over two years, which was obviously quite manageable. Uh, and we're doing scenarios now that will keep our core business going, but means that, for example, we might have to not proceed with some of our res- community standards research projects. So the sort of real value add, but not business critical um, projects would, will probably be delayed. But one of the things we're really excited that we're going to start on next month is, um, and hopefully giving our, someone in our Canberra community some work, is to develop uh, some really interesting online education tools that we can then be having on our website and reaching out to small business, small and medium business about make, raising their awareness of the advertising codes and ad standards. Fiona, thanks for joining us. It's a pleasure. Thanks, guys. That's nearly it for this week. If you want more multimedia action with Mumbrella, don't forget to join us on Tuesday for a live webinar with Web Profits on how to shape conversations with consumers during these extraordinary times. You'll find all the details on Mumbrella. And a final point I'd like to make. Remember, if you hear sponsors on the Mumbrella cast or see the ads on the website, Please know that they are helping us keep the lights on as we get used to a business model that doesn't allow us to run live events at the moment. We've always appreciated your support, but now more than ever. And thanks very much to everyone who's been helping us improve the quality of the audio as we get used to producing the Umbrella Cast remotely. I'm not saying we're fully there yet, but we're beginning to, to make progress. Uh, so uh, thanks to the advice of Abe, Abe's Audio and Ben at The Code Co. So, um... We're beginning to get there. We're using new technology this week. Um, next week, I'm even hoping that Amazon will have delivered my new microphone and then we'll really start nailing it. 
Or alternatively, Tim will just sound better than the rest of us plebs on our little headphones. But before we go, don't forget to check out the new Mumbrella Meet the Market series on the website, along with our new seven-minute masterclass. There's a lot more of that coming in the next few days. All the analysis in today's Mumbrella cast is brought to you by Budget Direct. Budget Direct encourages everyone to stay safe and positive during this challenging time. Rest assured, through their advanced work-from-home capabilities, Budget Direct already has everything in place to look after their customers' insurance needs at this time. And don't forget to rate us on the podcast platform of your choice. That's it for this week, though. Thanks, everyone. Thanks. Thanks. Toodle pip. <laughs> <laughs>